The Perfect Ten with Steve Allen, voice of the NRL and six-time Radio Award winner. Welcome to another edition of The Perfect Ten and one of our favourite guests, Lightning Luke King, race car champion. He used to race in the Toyota 86 series and is now running second in the TCR Australia series in the Audi, just behind his teammate Chaz Mostert. And he's got ambitions to race overseas against the best that Europe has to offer in the TCR series. Luke King with just one left-hand turn remaining. He's third, 40.5 to the second sector. He's similar in time, so could put this car up onto the front row. This episode, we talk about the Formula One series, Daniel Ricciardo winning in the last month, also Lewis Hamilton with his 100th race win, and Lando Norris, a heartbreak for him in Sochi. We also talk about the Aussies on the world scene who are dominating in numerous forms of motorsport, and of course, racing domestically with the TCR series and also the supercars on the same bill at Bathurst in December. I caught up with Luke and his beautiful partner Elizabeth at their unit overlooking the water in Gosford. And I started by asking Luke about our naming rights sponsor, Robson Civil Projects. Luke also has an affiliation with the award-winning business. I asked him what's the first thing that comes to mind when he thinks of Robson Civil Projects. Well, they're the name that comes to mind for, for me when I when I look at a road or a bridge being built and obviously having driven past their place at Summersby on the way to my old job every day. Um, I think of Robson whenever it comes to, to civil projects. So, uh, yeah, good local company, always supported the community. So uh, thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks again to Robson Civil Projects for their ongoing support. Congratulations to the team as well on the new office in Dubbo in Western New South Wales. Well, Luke, great to see you. You've been one of our most popular guests in the last 18 months. Welcome once again to The Perfect Ten. Thank you to have me back, mate. It's uh, Yeah, it does feel like it's been ages. I can't believe we're now in October or, or halfway through it and we're talking about the back end of the F1 season and, and my first season in TCR Australia. Are we in the trophy room here? Yeah, well, you are actually. There's, there's four trophies in, in this room. So uh, I didn't think that we would actually have any on debut this year. But, uh, but yeah, it's turned out that way and we're fighting for a top two. I, I do notice something about you as well. You must really love your beard. Is that correct? I do, yeah. Why is that? Is that a bottle opener on your <laughs> phone case? No, it's it's not actually. That's a quad lock for my bike. So, uh, But I'm, I'm sure it could double up as a, as a bottle opener. I do love my uh, Peroni Ligueras. It's a, it's a good midweek low-carb option. Yeah. Hey, uh, you've um, become one of the world's best motorsport analysts in 2021 because of the fact that there's been very little racing. You have done some... Uh, racing on the sim and you've had some big wins overseas as well yeah so i suppose um it's given me a chance to kind of keep track of everything that's been happening across formula one and and everything that's going on overseas so uh paid pretty close attention to all of that and yeah like you say we've been racing in in the uk in the blue streak e-series which has been pretty cool so uh yeah making some new connections got our first sim sponsor now and obviously all the stuff we're doing in tcr is amazing so it's a dream come 
true at the minute. What a world we live in where you've got a sim sponsor. Yeah, I know. It's crazy. Um, it's I, I can't wait to get my, my new rig. It's a track racer rig for anyone who's uh, wanting to go and have a look at it. Um, they're, they're pretty cool. They do flight simulators and stuff as well, so I might have to brush up on my flying skills too. Did you win at the home of motorsport in the UK? Uh, well, if you want to, if you would call Silverstone the home of motorsport, then yeah, I, I suppose you could say we did. Um, it's where the the British Grand Prix held. So, uh, and I actually raced there last night again, and we were on the podium, which was uh, which was nice. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's been a good place to us. Who are you on the podium with? So the the guy. Don't tell me you don't know. No, I do. I do. The guy that won the race was Bart Horston, who's currently in British F3 at the moment. So he's one of the young Aussies that we were talking about on SEN the other day. Um, and the other guy's name's Nikolai so-and-so. I don't, I don't know his surname, but uh, I'm pretty sure he races GT over in Europe. Where do you want to start with this episode? Do we want to talk Formula One? And in particular, uh, let's backtrack to Daniel Ricciardo's recent win where the Shuey was reintroduced... I think it was his first win since 2018. Yeah, yeah, you're right there. So let's let's definitely start there because I feel like we haven't had the chance to really debrief on that. And I I want to say that after that event, I rang Dad because he wanted to talk to me about it. And as everyone knows, Dad, you know, worked in the Moffat dealer team and massive in in motorsport is the reason that I'm here. And I said to him, Dad, I just love motorsport. Like, you could never have written that script on Ricardo going from Red Bull, you know, Renault, McLaren, having such a tough start with Lando, and then all of a sudden he pulls his form out and manages to battle his way through with the sprint qualifying, which is, you know, a new thing for this year, and wins a race, you know? Like, it's just, um, yeah, it just makes you love it so much, and that's why we're all addicted to it, I suppose. Yeah, if uh, Liz, your beautiful partner, zooms in, You've written down split times. I mean, that's how serious you are about tracking Ricardo uh, yeah. in 2021. Yeah, well, I, I suppose um, when we've been talking about him and why is Daniel off the pace or, or, you know, what do you think's happening to him, I kind of, that's the stats that I would look into on myself to self-analyze, say, against Shaz or whoever we're competing against. So... When you look at, at Daniel's stuff, you can kind of see the patterns as to what's working for him and, and what's not, and that's pretty important to to try and understand where he's at. Yeah, what does this story tell? So at the moment, it seems, and you know, you can sort of gather some of this from his interviews as well, is that he's really seeming to struggle with the car through high to medium speed corners. Anything that requires a bit of brake and trying to carry speed through a corner... Monza is that outlier in the calendar where it's more reliant on you know good a good braking platform, getting the car stopped and turned at, at slow speed, and then getting good drive off the corner, which you could see he was getting great drive compared to the Red Bull. Whereas then we go to Turkey and Russia, and you see he's about you know four to five tenths off the pace of of Lando. Um, I think. In Russia, which was literally the next weekend, he was you know 20 seconds down on Lando by the first pit stop, which is a huge margin. And I think once you sort of break that down, it adds up to about half a second a lap. So you can tell he's still missing something there. But the positive from Monza is he still knows how to win a race. He can very much control a race. Whereas I think if Lando had Max on his back for that amount of time, 
you might not have seen McLaren stay in the lead for as long as they did. We've got to talk about Lando because, I mean, that was heartbreaking. Did you say you had tears where, uh, you know, does he go in and change tyres late? In the end, it becomes like an ice skating rink in Sochi. Yeah, it was... I had my head in my hands for him because he should have won that Grand Prix and I think everyone recognises that. And I just... I know what that is like when you've made a mistake or something's happened to you. You pretty much know you had it in the bag and it all just, just... goes away like it just runs away so I felt really sorry for him um, but in the end I don't think he really had a had a choice you know the team were kind of they weren't as strict or um, pushy as they could have been to try and get him to pit they left it up to him and I think they were much more reliant on their driver to make the call than what Mercedes were Mercedes were kind of like Lewis you should pit like we we know so um, you know, the call was probably 50-50 and I think uh, that's reflected in the team's comments. You know, they weren't blaming Lando and Lando wasn't blaming them, which is a good thing um, because they needed to recoup pretty quickly after that. Yeah, actually, uh, my great mate Michael Butner, he asked a terrific question. So that would mean that uh, a young driver's got to overrule about 15 or 20 people in the pits yeah. to make that call? Yeah, pretty much. I mean... You say overrule, they kind of, like I said, they did sort of leave it up to him, but you've got analysts at the circuit, obviously his race engineer who's on the pit wall, but then you've got people running strategies back at home base, um, which for McLaren's in Woking in the UK. So there's often a driver on the simulator at the same time that they're running the race, which is um, obviously trying to help them predict their strategy and, and where they're going. So, uh, so yeah, he's overruling quite a few people making that call. But in the end, it's like being on the battlefield, you know, like Lando's the soldier that's kind of out there fighting it and, and feeling everything that's going on. And the pit crew are the generals behind the scenes kind of, you know, making the, the calls and trying to move the pawn pieces. And, and he's, you know, sort of made a call for himself. Hey, uh, that is great insight. It sounds like the movie Apollo 13, where they're trying to get back, uh, starring Tom yeah. Hanks, of course, yeah. and uh, they've got a simulator trying to work out what the guys are doing in space, trying to come back into the stratosphere. Yeah, but they, they were all feeling it out, right? Like, they, they weren't sure whether that trajectory was actually going to get them back, and it was all based on eyesight or whatever it was. It was I'm no astronaut, but I'm just trying to remember the movie from when I was 15. Yeah, but that's what they're doing back at yeah. HQ. Yeah. And uh, what about the team going 1-2? That's huge. Like, it was amazing that they could actually get get the one two. Um, I was going to say to pull off a win in itself would have been amazing for McLaren, but to have both cars there, obviously I think that was helped a bit by the fact that Lewis and Max took each other out in that turn one two incident, but it looked hard to pass at Monza anyway. So I think, you know, having Daniel in front and Lando sort of backing them up, it, uh, yeah, it just made it easy for McLaren to bring home the win. Just going back to Sochi, Let's not forget, too, that uh, one of the greatest of all time is right on Lando's tail, and that's Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. Uh, actually, let's, let's bring that into the equation. Where do you rank Lewis, who's now won 100 uh, Formula One Grand Prix? Where do you rank him all time? There's a, I see so many arguments about this online, and I am a self-confessed Lewis fan. I always have been, um, and his actions off track have never really taken away from what I think of him as a, as a driver. People will argue that he's had the best car and that Schumacher was better, but 
back in the early 2000s, everyone was saying, oh, Michael only wins because he's with Ferrari. But when you look at him compared to Bottas, and Bottas has been his longest teammate that he's ever had, Bottas has probably uh, got the ability to win world championships and to beat Max in that Mercedes if it wasn't for Lewis. So... What we, what I see with Lewis is that he's able to bring that bit of X factor, that you know, two tenths here and there when you really need it, or even half a hundredth of a second to to pit Red Bull, um, where Bottas can't. So, and then in the race, he just knows how to control a race. He's kind of, to me, is a complete package of a blindingly quick qualifier, but also for wheel to wheel racecraft, it's kind of hard to. To outsmart the guy. I'm old enough to remember Etten Senna. Yep. So f- for me, you know, he's going to be hard to beat. He's in a photo finish. I'm also old enough to remember Alan Jones. Uh, you know how exciting that period was in the early 1980s. Yeah. So uh, as in, like, uh, to have an Australian winning, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I just did a Jonathan Thurston. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kept the mic on you and not on myself. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, f- talk, talk to me about Alan Jones, mate. What was that like? Oh, look, it was. I think from memory, he was racing Nigel Mansell. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they were just fabulous races and. I think this latest period, I've probably enjoyed it as much as I have any other era in Formula One, maybe because probably the last three or four years, it's almost like one or two cars can win. This latest period, this last few months, it's almost like any of, you know, four or five cars can win on their day. Yeah, I think that's the uh, that's the good thing about F1 right now. It's what we've all been waiting for. This this Mercedes Red Bull fight has been, and the, the Max Lewis fight specifically, I think, is what people have been waiting for. Because Max, I think, kind of has a bit of that Ayrton feel about him. Um, and then Lewis is, you know, your established sort of Schumacher type figure that's, you know, top of the stats at the moment. So it's amazing to see. And then, like, I mean. The outliers in the series are like George Russell. Uh, we haven't spoken about him at all, but to qualify that Williams up in the top five and to take their first podium, albeit at a pretty questionable event at Spa at the you know a few rounds before, you know like those sort of guys coming through are just next level. Like the Charles Leclerc, George, Lando um, are probably your top three for for the next decade, I think, and Max obviously. You asked about Alan Jones and. My memory, I could be wrong here, but I think he did race uh, against the Andretti's. He also raced against Nicky Lauda. So I think they're in that crossover period. Yeah, Nelson Piquet, I think it was around that time as well. Um, I've actually worked with AJ when we've done some Lexus corporate events together. He's an ambassador for, for Lexus. So I've gotten to spend some time with him and, and hear some pretty cool stories from his days in, in F1. And I've, I've listened a lot to, to some of the podcasts that he's been interviewed on. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty wild to hear some of the stories that those guys got involved with traveling the world back then. Off to the U.S. next in the Formula One series. Uh, this is my last question on this subject. Who wins and why? Oh, look, it's, it's really... That's not a straightforward question. I think it's... What I, what I think is it'll go right down to the final race. I think there's a few tracks that will favor Mercedes and a few that will favor Red Bull. And there's some in there that we don't know. Saudi's one of them. Um, so... I think if it comes down to the last event, I'm going to say Lewis on experience. But um, it's all going to depend on how well Red Bull do over the next few events. 
Bottas, Ricardo, uh, Hamilton, the Ferraris, they've all changed engines in the last month. Tell us some of the reasons why. So F1, to try and cut down budgets and to try and help push the sustainability side of the sport, F1 mandated that you were only allowed to have three sets of power units for a year. So whether that's your, your engine, your battery, your turbocharger, all the components of what make up a power unit, you're only allowed three of those for, for the year. So Mercedes were on their third. Um, Red Bull, as we all know, had damaged one at Silverstone. They'd put another one in, which had had some troubles, and then they had to go to their fourth, which is why they took the penalty in Russia. Mercedes have kind of preempted that happening. They didn't change the whole power unit set. They only charged the internal combustion unit, um, which is just like your normal engine out of a car that we all know. So um, they've done that from a reliability standpoint, um, bitten the bullet early. So Because the, the last thing they would want to do is to have a reliability issue not finish a race, then take an engine penalty for the next race, which is what is a potential scenario that they were trying to avoid. So um, they've done that now. Honda have done that with Red Bull. So I think both teams are now ready for the seven races ahead. Do you feel like uh, because of Drive to Survive, there is more interest in Formula One than there ever has been? Yeah, 100%. I think just everyone clambering for for content, you know, and, and wanting to know what's going on behind the scenes. Like especially after the Italian win for Ricardo, I just wanted to be, I think I said to you and Buttes, I wanted to be on his Instagram all day because I just wanted to see what it was like to be an F1 driver and win that race and to be in his shoes. So, yeah, I think it's definitely helped a lot and it's bringing younger fans to the sport too. By the way, the Perfect 10 podcast brought to you proudly by Robson Civil Projects and their headquarters around about 10 minutes from your place here in Gosford. Hey, uh, the Aussies on the world stage, give us an update. So I went through and had a look at who was sort of obviously at the top level, like your, your Daniel Ricardos, and then who was on the succession side of that coming through. And I think my words to you, Steve, is that we're stacked for success at, at the moment. Um, we've got... So I'll work through them. So in F1, obviously, we've got Daniel. F2, we've got Oscar Piastri, who's leading that championship at the moment. Um, and Alpine Jr., who's looking to probably be in F1 next year uh, or the year after. He won the F3 series, so he's one of the only guys looking to do the double up of winning F3 in his rookie year, moving straight to F2 and winning F2 in his rookie year. The only other guys that have done that are George Russell and Charles Leclerc. So he's in that frame of you know the next big thing in F1. So you move down from there. Um, Liam Lawson is one that we need to, to note. He's in F2 as a Red Bull junior. He's a Kiwi, um, but he's also racing DTM, which is the German Touring Car Championship, which has very famous heritage. Unluckily missed out on winning that championship on the weekend at Norris Ring uh, in, in Germany, which was very controversial. Uh, the Audi factory driver in the GT series there actually made a questionable move and took him out in the first corner, which uh, completely ruined his championship, basically. So there's been a lot of comments back and forth on that. Move to F3, uh, young Jack Doohan, who you've made some, some comments about, and, and Callan Williams. So Doohan finished second in F3 this year, which is a good result for him compared to where he was in his rookie year in F3. Um, I don't quite think he's at Piastri's level yet, but I think he will move to F2 next year, so we'll see how much progress he's made. Have you thought about that, open wheel racing? 
Well, look, I mean, I would have loved to have done that when I was younger. Um, and we did race Formula Ford. Um, I've done some radicals. Um, and if people want to Google LMP3, um, we've sort of been there. So, you know, that wings and slicks type environment would be amazing to, to do. Um, but there's actually an age limit for, for F3 in Europe. So if you want to compete in the international series, you've got to be under 25. Um, and F2 is astronomically expensive. That's like probably three, three million a year euro to, to try and compete in. So uh, I don't think Piastri will be doing it again if he wins this year. Hey, by the way, did you see Sebastian Vettel and uh, the team drive the Aston Martin? Uh, the James Bond car. Yeah, yeah, I did see that, and I thought it was uh, it was obvious that Seb knew what he was doing compared to um, Stroll, because Seb was actually able to hold a drift and could probably pass off as a stunt driver. Whereas you can just tell Stroll's driven paddle shifts all his life. He probably didn't even know where the clutch pedal was. Yeah, yeah. And how good was the uh, the stunt driver himself? Incredible. Yeah, amazing. Uh, my mum always hits me up and thinks that I should move to America to be a stunt driver. But uh, yeah, it's uh, that'd be a pretty cool gig, actually. Like the the amount of stuff that you'd get to do would be would be amazing. Hey, what about your series? Uh, we've got this up here, the uh, TCR Australia series. Yep. Um, maybe going back to racing soon. Actually, just before we step, uh, just before we step through that, isn't there a TCR driver overseas who is absolutely smashing it? The Spaniard. Yeah. So Mikel Azcona, or Azcona, depending on how you pronounce it, um, he's racing world touring cars and also European TCR. So uh, he competed in two races or two championships across the weekend uh, in two different countries. So I worked it out. To fly from Barcelona to the Czech Republic is about a two and a half hour flight. And then obviously you've got to get to and from the airport. So I believe the way that he worked it out was that to win the European TCR series, all he had to do was qualify and finish the first race in the top six, I think it was. So he actually practiced for his World Touring Car Championship round where he was currently placed eighth. He went back one... I, th- I think he won or he was up in the top three at least for European TCR and sealed sealed the series off, then flew back to the World Touring Car Championship and put himself in the top three of the World Touring Car standings with three rounds to go. So, yeah, I mean, same car, two different teams, two different countries, two different tracks. It's pretty amazing. So if you win the Australian TCR series, you'll be up against these guys? So if we were to get to, to Europe, these are the guys that we would be up against. So, and uh, funny you mentioned that. I have had that conversation recently with some of our sponsors and um, I'm trying to work into a, a bit of a contract that if we finish top two in TCR this year, that they take me to the World Touring Car Championship. So, How are those talks progressing? Um, I, they're positive. The guys want to support me. Um, and I think there's even the possibility that we could run Aussie TCR and World TCR. So maybe we fly between Sydney and the UK next year. I, I don't know. Um, but that's the ultimate goal. Uh, we're, we're in this patch now where we've got all the momentum you know, we've, we've got some really good results behind us. So I think um, the next step for us has to be either, you know, backing up TCR Australia next year with a, with a championship win or going to Europe. 
So finally on this episode, um, maybe a couple of races before the end of the year? Yeah, so the rumours at the moment are, I think we're pretty shaky on Sydney. I'm not sure if TCR will get to to Sydney. There was rumours that that we might fit in between some of the supercar events and then obviously Bathurst as well. So that Bathurst event is actually a TCR event that has now been kind of gifted to supercars in a way. so the owners of TCR have pretty much all but completed their buyout of supercars. So that allows the two categories to work a bit more um, collectively together. So um, unfortunately, we seem to have lost a, a bit of our, um, what I would call the TCR weekend to the 1000. But the 1000 is the Melbourne Cup of, of motorsport. So there's no real arguments there. And what are your thoughts about the the supercar series and uh, the Bathurst weekend itself? Like, who do you think are the front runners at this stage? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's probably going to be tough to beat the Red Bull guys there again. They've got a, a really good set of consistency with their, their cars and their drivers, especially. Um, I think Shane and, um, and Garth will be hard to beat there in the Red Bull. But you never know with, with Bathurst. Um, I mean, Chaz is especially looking really good in that Walkinshaw car, and Lee seems pretty on form at the moment too. Um, and then the Mustangs are, are always quick at, at Bathurst. So, yeah, look, it's it's hard to pick. Um, I would say Red Bull as a favourite, and then as an outside chance, I reckon Chaz is definitely in there. Um, but the Penske cars, you could never count them out. Um, so, yeah, I think it'll be a good weekend, and there's a lot of movements happening in supercars too. Hey, by the way, what have you learned about yourself? What have you learned about yourself in the TCR Australia series? That you belong in the upper echelon? Yeah, I I think not to underestimate ourselves. I think this year especially, um, it's just been to have have confidence in myself. And, you know, like we kind of have carried that throughout all the junior categories where I've always believed that if I got the opportunity to prove myself, I would. And I think we have done that this year with the limited opportunities we've had. You know, like even at Tassie at the start of the year, we went down there having never driven the car, never seen the track at Tassie before. And in Q1, we out-qualified Chaz and we were the first car to go into the 55s for, for Audi. So I think that was a turning point for us where the team actually looked at it and went, oh, Luke's not just a rookie coming in. We could actually have a, a top three this, this weekend and, and now it's turned out to be a, a top three for this year. So, you know, my initial thoughts going into TCR was if we could pull off a top five and have some strong results, that would be good. But no way did I think we'd be on the podium so so quickly. So, uh, yeah, I'm happy. Hey, uh, Luke, it's been uh, awesome to catch up with you again on The Perfect Ten. Uh, when I say the words Robson Civil Projects, What's the first couple of words that pop into your mind? Um, <laughs> um, trucks, bulldozers, and, uh, and cement. And, and say uh, maybe uh, amazing infrastructure. And amazing infrastructure. And black asphalt, like nice, smooth, black <laughs> asphalt that I would like to drive on. And subdivisions. And subdivisions. <laughs> Anything else you want to say on this episode? Um, 
I don't know. I don't think so. I think we've covered it pretty well. I'm keen to do do more, and I can't wait to kind of debrief the rest of what F1 and all the other championships have got to give us. And hopefully, I can uh, I can say that we're top two in TCR by the end of the year. Yeah, and this is a logical move for you because you're in huge demand as an analyst and commentator with motorsport these days. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate that. Um, I hopefully maybe that's that's something that I look at as a career even while I'm moving through the sport now like I do obviously I love watching the sport as much as I love competing in it so um yeah I do my research and I love talking about it it's easy so why not lightning Luke King one of our most popular guests in the last 18 months on the perfect 10 and he's really forging a great career off the track with his expert analysis Thanks, as always, to our naming rights partner, Robson Civil Projects. And just before we go, congratulations to Robson Civil Projects and also the Avid Property Group. Since August 2020, over 200 lots in six stages have been completed of the Waterford development and another 200 lots are being worked on at the moment. So it's absolutely enormous and well done to the entire team. If you want to check out the site in the Hunter Valley, simply go to the Robson Civil Projects Facebook page for all the details. Thanks for listening to another edition of Perfect 10. We'll catch you soon. The Perfect 10.